4: Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Hey guys, I love the podcast and I'm usually a huge fan of your work, but I have to say, I just listened to the Cryptids of Australia episode and I was very disappointed. At the beginning, you mentioned that you did the cryptid math. I can't believe no one took this opportunity to say, you did the monster math. I expect better.
2: That was not dad
1: joke, a missed opportunity.
2: That was from Devin. My name's Matt. My name's Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul Deckent. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. That makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Matt,
0: that was new. Was that, was that, you're trying something out? <laughs> Just messing around. It's like a cold open kind
1: of <laughs> in a weird way. Unrelated entirely. Just, you know, calling us out for not doing the monster math. It's cool.
2: Well, also calling us out for maybe not doing our due diligence, which is something that's going to come up a lot in this episode in particular, right? You can say all sorts of things, but can you prove them? I, I don't know. Let's, maybe let's start this way. So the four of us live and record in the Atlanta area. And Atlanta... In a in a huge burst of good news, has a tremendous drug problem. <laughs> what? Yeah, like as we're recording, a huge burst of good news. And <laughs> be <being> sarcastic, but <laughs> as we're recording this, not more than three or four hundred yards away from the studio we're in right now, there is more than likely someone on a back street doing a hard drug of some sort, and maybe on a main street, there are also probably several people on street corners in the same vicinity selling these drugs. And if you live in a large American city, areas of your local metropolis almost definitely have areas where drug problems are endemic and there there are huge issues with trying to address it. But here's the big question. Where does all of this come from? You know what I mean? The local corner drug dealer – is almost certainly not flying to the Golden Triangle or flying to South America on a weekly basis to sell somebody like heroin or cocaine at ten bucks a pop. It's just the the plane ticket's too expensive. It economically doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah, and and that person or group of people selling drugs on the corner aren't also on those flights purchasing the large quantities of cocaine or whatever, then flying all of that stuff back to the United States, then processing it into, let's say, crack cocaine, which Mm -hmm. is a process. And then, like you said, selling it for that low amount of money.
2: right? And there's an excellent study that Freakonomics did a while back. We're big fans of Freakonomics. uh, That busted the myth that drug dealers make tons and tons of cash. Actually, you would be... And you might be incredibly surprised by how little drug dealers, most drug dealers actually make.
3: It kind of reminds me of that thing we talked about, Ben, off mic, about how little money bank robbers probably make. You know, it's this Mm -hmm. notion that they're just cleaning it up. But in fact, banks don't keep that much money on hand. And to make a decent living, like even like a relatively decent living, you would have to – your success rate would have to be 100 Mm percent and you would have to, you know – do a certain amount of heists every year
2: with a certain amount of people. With a certain
3: amount of people. Not that it's related one to one, but you'd think that drug dealers, you know, there's this cliche notion that mm-hmm. they're raking in the cash. But uh, I'm interested in your stats, Ben.
1: Oh well, yeah. There's an, there's the article from L.A. Times that it's literally titled "Why Drug Dealers Live with Their Moms." Mm-hmm. And it goes into what you're talking about here, how very little most of the people actually selling the drugs make.
2: Now, I don't want to – I can toot my own horn a little bit on the Bank Heist thing too, which I think they are related uh, mainly because I wrote the video but I – I think someone else appeared in it. Uh, we did a brain stuff video way back in the day about why you shouldn't rob a bank and you can find the bank stats there, but they're they're sobering and somber, and we see the same thing with drug dealers there's a quick excerpt we could read here. The top 120 men on the Black Disciples Pyramid, that's the the hierarchy of the gang, right, were paid very well, but the pyramid they sat atop was gigantic. So if you use this franchise from a guy named J.T., they mentioned earlier in the article, uh, the franchise had three officers and 50 foot soldiers. There were about… 5,300 people working for those 120 bosses at the top of the pyramid. And then there were 20,000 unpaid rank-and-file members, most of them who were just vying to become a foot soldier. And how well did that foot soldier dream job pay?
1: The foot soldier job that these 20,000 people
2: want. Right. $3.30 an hour. But you don't have to pay taxes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And again, this is written in... um, 2005, and this is, I believe, that's when they were out actually speaking with these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so $2,005.
2: So, clearly not enough for regular international travel. Where does this stuff actually come from? How does cocaine enter the U.S.? How does heroin enter the U.S.? And then on and on with these other drugs, especially when— Uncle Sam ostensibly spends billions and billions of dollars just trying to stop the drug trade. How does it get here? One person thought he found the answer, and he was an investigative journalist named Gary Webb.
3: So Gary Webb was born on August 31st, 1955 in Corona, California, and he wanted to be a a writer from a very early age. Worked for the student newspaper at his college in Indianapolis. Um, He ended up getting married to a woman named Susan Bell, and they went on to have three kids together. Mm -hmm. Um, And he first started getting into investigative reporting um, when a piece appeared in the Kentucky Post in 1980 called The Coal Connection. It was a massive series, a 17-part series that he collaborated on with a guy named Thomas Sheffy that looked at um, – Ben, you might know more about this uh, a conspiracy surrounding a coal company. So he was already kind of early on into whistleblowing and kind of like this sort of deep dive truth-telling, trying to expose the ills of society, right?
2: Right. Similar to the – that wonderful journalist we interviewed a while back, Mark Paraschia, I believe his name was. Correct. Yeah, who did some fantastic work on uh, the US government's arrangements with spies in the era of civil rights this guy was a small town reporter who was breaking big stories and uh, in, in this uh, that yeah. was a
1: big deal specifically about the the assassination or the murder of a president of this coal company mm-hmm. and how this guy perhaps had some uh, or he did have ties to organized crime like mm-hmm. it, that's that's no Small thing you don 't write about that, and then not worry about writing about that
2: <laughs> and and as our friend Mark established earlier the the thing about being a an investigative journalist that 's worth your salt is that so much of the actual work is just verifying and triple checking every single syllable of every single sentence that is fit to print, and you have to do it before it goes out to the masses. It turned out that Gary Webb seemed to have a gift for this, and that was just the beginning. His major work, the one that most of us listening are probably familiar with, is something called the Dark Alliance. And over the years, several people have kind of muddied the water of his research and what he actually claimed. So it's very important for us to look at what he did do and then also look at what he did not do. Precisely. So here's here's the gist. In nineteen ninety-six, Gary Webb writes a series of three articles for the Mercury News, which I believe is out in San Jose. San Jose. So in these, these three articles are, are pretty lengthy, and later they're all collected into a book named The Dark Alliance. This it's difficult to explain how much of an impact this made. So let's just go with what he says. In this series of articles, Gary Webb alleges and claims that Nicaraguan Contras are responsible for the Los Angeles crack cocaine epidemic of the 1980s. It's a bold claim. Well,
1: yeah, and – Yeah, that they're responsible, but there are a bunch of other
2: hands involved too. Right. They're not working alone. He claims that the U.S.'s Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, knew this was going on, knew there was an active uh, and elaborate and very, uh, very robust drug trafficking network there. And at the very least, he says, the CIA ignored it. At worst, he says, they may have... Uh, helped them actively covered up the crimes, met with the drug lords, provided transportation, provided transportation. Shout out to uh, what Air, Air America—that's America. the one. So these allegations were, were pretty pretty harsh, as you said, a bold claim. But the thing is, they weren't far fetched. In South and Central America, it's not unusual for these separatist or revolutionary groups to turn to the drug trade as a way to raise some cash. Other groups have done it too like FARC or The Shining Path and I actually met FARC representatives who were very much against that that process. Mm. So it all goes back to documentation, right? Gary Webb builds this case and he argues somehow uh, as opposed to all the other drug-running operations on that continent, somehow the Contras are able to get cocaine into the US and then most importantly get cash out – with a lot less of a hassle than other cartels or drug runners.
1: Well, yeah. So they're, they're saving a ton of money somehow in this whole process in the transportation, right? hmm And what that's allowing them to do, and this is where it gets really bad for people who live in the United States, this allows these groups to sell their product at a much, much lower price than their competitors.
2: Right. So you can't, it's, it's like a, when a mom and pop store is trying to compete with a huge big box chain grocery store, they have the economy of scale that allows them to sell an apple for 50 cents, whereas the mom and pop store has to sell it for a dollar.
1: And why would you buy your apple for a dollar when you know you can get it for 50 cents?
2: Maybe it's a more delicious apple.
1: It's the exact same apple, my friend. You, I don't know. Maybe if you pay more for it, it, it tastes better.
2: It's true. There's <laughs> a <is> study. <laughs> okay. There's a study yeah. with wine that absolutely proves that. Yeah, that is true. You're Calling right. out all sommeliers. <laughs> so we'll, we'll go ahead and, and maybe publish that study on wine on here's where it gets yeah. crazy later.
1: But, but what if you're addicted to apples? Like mm. addicted to apples? Are you still going to pay a dollar? Well, I don't know.
3: I mean, it depends, right? Like are you a connoisseur of mm-hmm. apples
2: or are you just eating like any old crab apple to scratch that unscratchable itch?
3: Yeah, there's different layers. There's different
1: um, – there's a hierarchy of addiction, right? right. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the crack epidemic probably was going more towards the, the – uh, crab apples. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Cra- yeah. Crack apples. Also, just an unnecessary point here. I feel like red delicious apple is like a, a terribly ironic name because those are terrible apples. <laughs> I don't like them either. They're kind of mushy. Yeah. You know, I I I don't get it. Fuji apples all day for me. It's Granny Smith. Granny Smith. Yeah, dude. I would not have figured you for a fan of tartness.
1: Oh, it's my favorite. What about you? What does that mean, Ben?
2: It's a it's a
3: tart apple. No, I know, but why would you why would you not think that Matt was a fan of of tartness?
2: Because Matt's Matt's palate runs more toward spicy. food. Oh. he's exploring extremes.
1: It, that's exactly what it is. Interesting. My I favorite th- tart is a Carl tart, though. Just mm. so you know.
2: <laughs> yes. Well done. Well done. It's cute. But uh, <laughs> word up. <laughs> but the um, I do love that character. The argument still stays the same, right? Like he says. Obviously, this – obviously, someone is influencing the game that the cartels are playing down there and I have, he says, proof that the CIA is either – again, either ignoring it, maybe helping it, has met with cartel leaders and so on. But what – before we get too far, let's ask ourselves what he actually did not do after a word from our sponsors.
0: your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime.
1: Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. And We're back. So the one thing that Gary Webb did not do by discussing these things in his three-part series that would become The Dark Alliance, uh, what he didn't do is break this story. He wasn't the first person to talk about America's crack coming from other places, perhaps the Contras and like specifically the Nicaraguan Contras with perhaps the CIA's approval. This was something that had already been kind of floating around. It was a a theory in a way. He was just backing up these beliefs with some facts or at least with as close to facts as he could get. Kind of fleshing out the picture, right? Yeah. He's giving you the details. He's zooming in with the camera a little bit.
2: (laughs) There we go. I like that. He never claimed to have evidence that the CIA engineered the entire thing. Correct. Only that they knew something was going on, they tacitly approved of it, and that they met with Contra leaders and funders to talk about the money.
3: Yeah, the fact of the matter is that there were a lot of kind of wild theories that shot off from this reporting, Mm -hmm. Um, and I know we'll get into some of this a bit more, but Webb was sort of discredited and then sort of vindicated and he's been a very divisive figure uh, in terms of like how rigorous his fact-checking was for some of this stuff. There's a piece, an op-ed in the Washington Post by a guy named Jeff Lean from 2014 who was their assistant managing editor and he basically, you should read it for yourself, it's very interesting, but he kind of goes through and shreds Webb in terms of his abilities as a um, investigative reporter and said that he makes all of these incredible claims and that in order to make incredible claims like that as a journalist you have to have incredible evidence right and right. he doesn't exactly
2: well and then also what what role do the editors play in that I'm glad you mentioned 2014 because that's an important year but let's let's get to the the reaction yeah. of the initial publication too so the media does conflate what Webb is saying as as we mentioned. They say that Webb is saying the CIA did it. Did it all, smoking gun, caught red-handed. It was the CIA with the crack cocaine in the uh, living room. As though they
3: invented the substance for some nefarious purpose, to try to manipulate the population into behaving a certain way. Or to incarcerate black men unfairly. Right.
1: The biggest thing is that they were saying that Webb was saying, the news is saying that Webb is saying that – the CIA is literally
3: the which, drug dealer.
0: Which he did not. He did not no, say no. that. I, I totally yeah, get yeah. that.
3: I mean it's and, – and you know, it's kind of what we're experiencing now with the quick turnaround of like internet reporting where it's very easy to conflate something in a properly researched story and turn it into something else for your sure. own purposes. Wouldn't have thought that would have been happening quite to this degree yeah. back then. But, well, but yet yeah, here we are. Right? This was
2: – this is back when the news was all made by like organic meat bags called humans. Rather than bots and botnets, you know what I mean?
1: Oh, those and we certified don't
2: organic meat bags. The, day, the, the days before uh, deep fakes, which is a scary thing, Uh-oh. right? Uh, yes, yeah, so you, you're absolutely right, guys. He, he did get conflated. now.
1: Well, and there's a whole other thing we're going to talk about in there about Gary Webb's sources right. and the people he was talking to that he couldn't actually cite as being the source.
2: Because they were so off the record. Mm -hmm. And then also on a related thing that we have to get to maybe in a future episode, it's pretty easy to prove that on some level, the federal government through multiple agencies has been targeting the black community for a long time. I mean, the same amount of cocaine and the same amount of crack cocaine carry wildly different... uh, Minimum mandatory incarceration terms, right? Why would that be?
1: Hmm.
3: Matt's making sort of a s- smushed-up face right
2: now. It's very Hollywood.
1: <laughs> is that your, no, That's no, your sorry, accusation? Sorry. Sorry, accusation.
2: That's your Charlie Day <laughs> in front of the conspiracy wall. <laughs> yeah, chain smoking accusation. I mean, it's it's a good question though, and the reaction is immense. This is actually one of the first. National security stories to really blow up online, to get people uh, in the normal mainstream America intensely interested. It's 20,000 words long. It enrages black communities who are wondering why are these epidemics happening? Why does it seem like there's more um, government punishment or harassment of the community rather than government assistance of a community in trouble. And then there are congressional investigations. Excuse me, congressional hearings.
1: Yeah, congressional hearings. But some of the biggest, uh, at least most uh, widely seen hearings or seen on television occur just within uh, smaller communities within L.A. and other Mm -hmm. uh, cities like that where there are people filling a room. A huge room and they are just asking people, how how long have you known about the CIA dealing drugs? Like did you know that CIA was dealing drugs? And they're asking their city officials and they're asking uh, big names who are Ooh. supposed to be in charge of things.
2: And again, Webb is in his – you can see interviews with him as well where he essentially says that he doesn't think the – CIA was like wringing its hands, Monty Burns style, and saying, "Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean." Yeah, he he says instead that they just really wanted money, yes. and they wanted off the books money anyway. Like if it hadn't been this, it would have been something else.
1: They couldn't officially use the government's money to pay.
2: For what they were trying to do, because that's back when that kind of policy or law actually stopped people from doing that sort of thing. Have
3: we talked much about the what the Contra affair was and why they were interacting with these militants who were like they were kind of like rogue militants, basically? What was the what was the benefit there?
2: We mentioned in a previous episode, but I think you're right. We should yep. go ahead and just just give you the quick and dirty. Right? It's also called Iran Gate which is mm-hmm. interesting. But here in the U.S., we usually call it... Uh,
3: the Iran-Contra Iran. Contra Affair, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: It's like the Thomas Crown Affair. Yeah. So essentially, what are the Contras, Matt? Well, they were
1: they were a group in Nicaragua and their whole point, or at least for the United States purposes, they were going to at least attempt to overthrow the Sandinista government in, which in Nicaragua. Which was
2: socialist. And exactly. These, these are right-wing rebel groups. So um, the... U.S. government tends to support right-wing insurgents uh, much more often than, say, left-wing or anti-capitalist insurgents. Basically, people who are pro-resource extraction tend to historically – I'm not saying now, but tend to historically get more support from the U.S. government.
1: Yeah, and and it's one of those things. If everyone is, If everyone in a country is getting to kind of share the wealth – in a more, you know, sometimes communist, sometimes socialist structures, that occurs where everyone gets a little piece. Uh, it's not so great when you could just control it from top down.
3: Oh man, of course, it's the top-down
1: th- approach.
2: Of course, the infamous top-down. So the that sounds weird when you say it that way. Yeah, the sorry. The infamous top-down. <laughs> all But right, so the Iran-Contra affair occurs when the National Security Council of the U.S. gets involved in secret weapon transactions and other activities that are prohibited by Congress. So Ronald Reagan, the Reagan administration – that's probably a better way to say it. The Reagan administration at the time is very concerned that communism will spread – throughout Central America and challenge the um, capitalist or you neoliberal know, hierarchy that is, you know, challenge the hegemonic status. Yeah, so the people of Nicaragua, or particularly the Satanista liberation movement they mentioned earlier, in 1979, they overthrow the president who is actually a dictator. And now the Reagan administration is having their – come to Jesus moment, as they would say in the South. So he thought this would eventually threaten the security of the United States. Remember, we're still in the Cold War era at this time. And so the Reagan administration pushed huge amounts of military aid into not just Nicaragua, but other governments and other places that have civil wars and guerrilla fighting in hopes of preventing – A left-wing government and in the case of Nicaragua, they wanted to destabilize that government and engineer an overthrow. So (laughs) why is Iran in there, right?
1: Yeah, how does Iran –
2: all right, factor so, into this. I don't understand. So they sold uh, anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles to Iran, believing that if they sold the missiles to Iran, Iran through its proxy, Hezbollah, would allow hostages in Lebanon to be released. This is already very Rube Goldberg-esque. No doubt. So much. And so a portion of the money that Iran paid for was diverted and then given to the Contras – a lot of this occurred under the uh, supervision of a uh, man who's very familiar to everyone, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. <gasps> right. You
1: may remember him from that famous hearing. Yeah, What is wasn't a hearing? I don't even know exactly what it was, but you can see video of him just right. admitting to this stuff.
2: And feels like he did the right thing to yeah. stop the, the ultimate war of ideology between the West and uh, the communist countries. So the problem with this stuff is that while they're raising this money for the Contras, they're violating something called the Boland Ad- Amendment, B-O-L-A-N-D, a law that was passed in 1984 that banned direct or indirect military aid to the Contras. So they're moving money in a sleazy way. Yep. But they think they're doing the right thing.
1: It's just a different kind of shell game.
2: It's kind of like – yeah, it's kind of like the idea that the ends justify the means – Mm -hmm. Or that there is a difference between what is legal and what is morally correct. And they felt like they were doing the moral thing. Okay, so that's around. Does does that? (laughs) Yeah, man.
3: Yeah, it does. And I knew some of that, but not all of that. But it, it sounds to me like the accusation here is they would go to any means necessary to prop up this militant group that was potentially going to do good for our government in deposing this kind of pesky regime that was in place. That was an inconvenient regime, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that would extend, as far as Webb's concerned, to funneling Mm. drugs into the United States knowingly in order to funnel some of that money into this cause that needed to be off-books money,
2: right? Right, right. Great. Black budget stuff, yeah. And so this accusation uh, lights a flame under the American public and in a strange not unprecedented, let's call it that, not unprecedented show of solidarity, various papers of note, excoriate Webb, the Washington Post before 2014. Like back when this was released, the Washington Post is saying there, there are huge problems with the reporting. There are huge errors. Why can't you cite who said that? Why can't you prove this claim that you're making? And then Webb would go back and say, "Why well, I, I didn't make that claim. But he can't compete with New York Times.
3: And in turn, uh, Jerry Chepos, Chepos, I believe, mm-hmm. who was the executive editor of the Mercury News, um, the paper that this piece was – the series of pieces were published in – kind of threw Webb under the bus. And he said, Mm -hmm. quote, we oversimplified the complex issue of how the crack epidemic in America grew through imprecise language and graphics, because there are a lot of infographics in this piece as well. We created impressions that were open to misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's the kicker, because it was that misinterpretation. Maybe Webb didn't go quite as far as as some people might think if you actually read the work. But there's some quotes in here I want to throw out too to see what you guys think. But it was those other... Mm -hmm more quick to jump on a you know hot story news outlets that kind of really just kind of made stuff up from whole cloth
2: right you can't defend yourself against the claim that you did not make other than saying you did not make that That's right. and if you don't have a large enough microphone or platform, you're you're just not going to get your rebuttal out there. I mean, rebuttals and corrections are some of the most seldom read parts of any newspaper. And this a lot most of this is occurring in newspapers at the time, although Webb was pressing enough to put his work online real quick. He made a website. He did the, yeah, surrounded these
3: pieces like early on, which was which is not. As much of a thing
2: back then. Right. It was very – as I say, he was very much an early adopter and the communities that needed to find out about this, he actually drove a lot of them online. People who ordinarily wouldn't have cared about this found it as a safe way to arrive at information they felt the government was trying to hide. It turns out – I want to go just quick to – back to 2014 where uh, the Washington Post republished or they published another um, criticism – which I, I think is the op-ed you're going to read from. Noel. Um the CIA, at the same year on September 18th, released a ton of documents spanning 30 years, three decades, and a lot of it confirmed confirmed stuff Gary Webb had argued. Uh, they they show at least that there was collusion to in in, in backstage smoky room style uh, collusion to try to suppress the story. One of the things that was released—
1: This is in 2014?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. One of the things that was released was an article that was six pages long titled, Managing a Nightmare, CIA Public Affairs and the Drug Conspiracy Story. So this—and you can find this online. Uh, this looks at how the CIA reacted to what it saw as a, a huge public relations crisis or a catastrophe and then showing that the agency actually didn't have to do much— to extinguish the public outcry to suppress the story because you see as we said as i said there are moments of not unprecedented solidarity mm-hmm. among papers of note at least here in the US probably in your country as well Sometimes that ha- – not all the time, but sometimes that happens because they have a relationship behind the scenes that you as the public will never see with intelligence agencies in that country. So the CIA essentially contacts their um, their higher-ups in the world of media and publishing and they say, look, let's all Voltron up together on let's this. Let's get on the same page, everybody. Like in JFK assassination. Can yeah. I read a quote from, yeah. from Webster? Pieces. Before
1: you do that, yes. just noting in that same year, 2014, that's when the Jeremy Renner movie "Kill the Messenger" comes out. That's right. That's all about uh, that's Gary, true. the Gary Webb story. Did you guys see that? Yes,
3: I hadn't even heard of it.
1: Oh, it's. I is it good? I, I really liked it, but only because we had done a video on it in the mm-hmm. past. Yeah. I knew the story really well. I getting a lot of a lot of push. I mean, it's.
2: I, a, I really
1: enjoyed it. Had oh. a built-in audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fair enough.
3: Um, I, just, I just want to point yeah, out a couple so cool. of these. Uh, Some of these claims that that I think are interesting when you read them in one place from Gary Webb's Dark Alliance trilogy of articles that ultimately became a book. Quote, thousands of young black men are serving long prison sentences for selling cocaine, a drug that was virtually unobtainable in black neighborhoods before members of the CIA's army started bringing it into South Central in the 1980s at bargain basement prices. So, I mean –
4: he, That's hyperbolic. It is hyperbolic yeah. as
3: hell. And and the guy who wrote this op-ed, <sighs> uh, the guy I was talking about earlier, the um, at, in, t- in 2014 anyway, the, Jeff Lean, who was the assistant managing editor for the Washington Post, he calls that a nut graph, which I had never right. heard of. And Whoa. I love this. And this is how he, is, he uh, sums that up: what a nut graph is. He he says this was one of the most difficult things for a reporter to write because you have to summarize some very outlandish, outrageous facts and synthesize you know, the truth behind it and somehow, you know, paint in the often contradicting notions behind it.
2: It's kind of like writing a a blurb for the story. It's telling the audience, why should I read this?
3: Exactly. But it's also, you know, he, he says this is kind of where Webb went off the rails and went a little too far. And he ultimately resigned from his position and was never hired again by any mainstream newspapers of notes. right? and he just kind of went rogue and did his own thing but he had already kind of set the tone for doing that mm-hmm. by making that website now mm-hmm. he had this book and he obviously had people that believed him and probably had a following outside of the mainstream press
2: yeah and also you know if the internet had been more prominent at the time things might have gone differently for him uh, he was also notoriously stubborn and at times difficult to work with he, he started blaming his editors pretty quickly. So it, things became acrimonious between uh, the Mercury editors and himself. But it did lead directly to a Senate subcommittee hearing where John Kerry, who was a senator at the time, investigated the AP's findings from the Associated Press. And they released in 1989 a a report that was more than 1,000 pages, it said it found, quote, considerable evidence that the Contras were linked to running drugs and guns and the U.S. government knew about it. So that would mean that on, on that base level, some of what Webb is saying is true, but the way that he's using these very um, highly dramatic phrases, like calling the Contras the CIA's army, you know what I mean? That's yeah. That, for a lot of investigators, that makes it tougher to believe these other claims. So you're probably wondering why we're speaking about Gary Webb in the past tense. And I know we're we're jumping around a lot right now. I guarantee you that previously we had, we had a nice little timeline. But we're, <laughs> we're painting the story. We've got a picture here. Uh, we're talking about Gary Webb in past tense because after all this stuff is occurring, he is largely considered to have failed his profession. He's essentially blacklisted from any job that he would want – uh, and he's in dire need of money, his characters being attacked and stuff. On December 10th of 2004, he was found dead with two thirty-eight caliber gunshot wounds to his head in his home in Carmichael, California, which he had just had to put on the market. Because he couldn't afford the mortgage. Right, because he couldn't afford the mortgage. Now, the coroner ruled that this death was a suicide. And Webb's ex-wife, remember we noted her earlier, Susan mm-hmm. Bell, uh, she said that he had been very depressed after a falling out with his former employers at the Mercury. And a lot of people believe that Being professionally discredited drove him to suicide and that his claims in the Dark Alliance were at the very least exaggerated if not made up. So the question is, you know, what happened? Did he break ethical boundaries? Did he falsify information in order to sell a juicy story? Could he not prove his claims? Did his professional failure lead him to take his own life or is there more to the story?
1: And we're going to talk about that right after a quick word from our sponsor.
2: He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed.
5: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
2: Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your
3: trusted companion for CBD relief.
2: Here's where it gets crazy. Although not really, because we we had established this. Yeah, kind of jumped ahead. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. But um so Gary Webb was right. He was correct at least partially, but probably but probably not all the way correct. Because as Lean says in that uh post op-ed, you had mentioned, Noel, uh, Gary Webb was no journalism hero, despite what Kill the Messenger says. As Lean pointed out, uh, there are a lot of things that are hyperbolic, a lot of things he can't support. But we have to mention, not only was he at least partially right, but despite the the hoopla and the controversy and character assassination, everybody— knew that he was right beforehand because two other journalists had figured this out in 1985, like more than a decade before the dark alliance. Journalists Robert Perry and Brian Barger or Barker found and proved that contra groups were trafficking cocaine to help finance their war in Nicaragua, which the US also wanted to happen. And then after they came out with that, the Reagan administration launched a behind-the-scenes campaign to assassinate their character, remove their credibility as journalists, and it was an attempt to discredit any reporting on contras and drugs. And there's an article by a guy named Peter Cornblow who was writing for the Columbia Journalism Review from 1997 who says whether the campaign was the cause of this suppression or not, coverage of the story was minimal. But it did happen. It
1: was proven. It did. And it's crazy to think about this now, but on March 4th, uh, 1987, the then President Reagan came out after not speaking to the American people for a long time during this whole Iran Contra just scandal, I guess is what you would call it. Uh, he came out and he gave a speech. And let's just listen to one tiny little piece of that.
0: First, let me say I take full responsibility for my own actions and for those of my administration. As angry as I may be about activities undertaken without my knowledge, I am still accountable for those activities. As disappointed as I may be in some who serve me, I am still the one who must answer to the American people for this behavior. And as personally distasteful as I find secret bank accounts and diverted funds, as the Navy would say, this happened on my watch. Let's start with the part that is the most controversial. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not.
1: So this was a big deal in Americans' minds. Mm -hmm. People knew about it. The president is going on television and saying, hey, I didn't know this was happening. It was happening, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know it was happening. Uh, Everybody's cool? Okay, we'll
2: just move forward. Like a plausible deniability, or genuinely, sincerely saying this occurred without my knowledge. Either way, he is already telling you in
1: 1987 this is happening.
2: And it's kind of it's interesting. I really appreciate you play that clip because it's it's something that is somewhat plausible. Because if you're if you're at that high level, if you're a, the president, then a lot of things that you say. Are directives that are well what sometimes in corporate jargon we refer to as the forty thousand foot view. Yeah, it's like saying, well, make sure that uh, communism doesn't spread in South and Central America. Okay, that sounds good, but you haven't if you if you leave all the details up to yeah, other people, yeah. you have no idea what they're going to do. You have maybe a reasonable expectation that they will obey the law, but other than that, it's. Give me results.
1: How badly does that person want to prove – like do what you want them to do and make make themselves look good in your eyes as the president? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you just – you don't know where that line is for everybody. It's different for everyone.
2: And this leads to a question that I I think a lot of people are still debating. We said said that his death was ruled as suicide, right? Yeah. We know that – we know that he died from two gunshot wounds to the head. A lot of people even today believe that Gary Webb was actually murdered and that his death was portrayed as a suicide to cover up further research he might have published. I mean, what do you guys think about that? Have, were, have you have been reading this?
1: Yeah, there were a lot of rumors that he was perhaps working on another piece, another story, mm-hmm. something bigger. Those are almost all rumors, uh, almost all of them. And then everything you hear from – his, his wife and specifically from his wife at the time, just about the deep depression that he was suffering from in those moments right, right before he died, mm-hmm. it does make you think perhaps this was a suicide. It just points to it, right? right? But let's just take a moment and put ourselves in his shoes. Imagine that you're a journalist. You're being contacted by people – Varying people of varying levels of involvement within the United States government and/or clandestine organizations. They are telling you stories about things that have occurred. They're giving you specifics about stuff that's already in the public domain. It's stuff that's known, but they're giving you the full story. And simultaneously, they're telling you, "You cannot publish my name. You, no one can ever know that I'm talking to you. This cannot happen." And you are publishing these stories out because this is your big break. This is something that feels very important. There are there are thousands and thousands of lives being affected right. fr- by what this these people are telling you, right? It is an important story to tell. The pressure that Gary Webb was feeling and must have been feeling to to put those stories out that would become Dark Alliance, I cannot fathom what that must have felt like. But I know for sure that it was heavy. It was a heavy burden to bear for him. And it affected his family life, and it if it affected his mental health in in some way. are there least. any
3: indications that he got death threats and things? I mean I would just assume so with being that that public and such a
1: divisive anti government story mm-hmm.
2: that's a good question, depending
1: I, on who you believe right If you watch the movie, it's definitely portrayed a lot but well who also knows?
2: in the movie in the film killing the messenger it's I heard it described in a review as. It's a retelling of the Gary Webb story in a place where everyone in the – in a universe where everyone in the world is wrong except for Gary Webb.
1: Everybody believes Gary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Where Gary Webb is, is right. Um, but but just from – in, uh, I just – I'm trying to identify with him maybe a little more than I should. But I can imagine a place where being discredited after having such strong feelings about it, being right. real and being important – Uh, would take a huge toll on not only your self-esteem and self-worth, but your ability to
2: continue on. And one thing that a lot of people see as a smoking gun here is the the fact that he died from not one but two shots to the head. You might be surprised by how many people who attempt uh, that sort of process do end up giving themselves ultimately a non-fatal injury. But – you know it's never it's never going to be pretty but one of I, one of the gunshots was through his cheek yeah so they believe that maybe he missed and then went for a second shot but because of that because of the idea that two gunshot wounds to the head um seemed unusual to a lot of people the majority of whom are not forensic investigators obviously uh there there's this huge outcry and Local reporters end up going to Sacramento County and they say, "Okay, what – go on record. Tell us what is this. And the coroner at the time, a guy named Robert Lyons said, it is unusual. It is a suicide. It's unusual in a suicide case to have two shots. But it's been done in the past. It's in fact a distinct possibility. So he's saying it's definitely suicide. This has happened before. And that explanation is not good enough for people who thought there was more to the story. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, there there are – you can hear versions of this story or read them online where he was attempting to leave. He was trying to get away. He was trying to sell his house. He was trying to leave and he was caught before he could leave by whatever nefarious forces. They, yeah. These claims have zero evidence to back them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it – you know, it's it's tough for me to completely discount them. But at the same time, it seems – a lot less plausible than the official story.
2: So here's – yeah, and here's another question, just to show both sides here. If it was some sort of murder and if it was related to his investigations in the Dark Alliance, then why did they wait eight years after the publication of the book for him to, to take him out of the picture? The timeline is just strange.
1: Yeah, the the claims I've seen were that he was working on something else outside of the Dark
2: Alliance, which is why it got him killed. And this argument, this discussion, this controversy continues in the modern day in 2018 as we record this in one of many of the American cities that still battle drug problems. Where is it all coming from? Is someone helping them out? Both sides of the argument – a lot of prominent papers do continue to attack Gary Webb's claims or attack is a strong word. They take it they take it apart piece by piece and say, you didn't prove this. Mm-hmm. This is, as you said earlier, Noel, a hyperbolic statement. And on the other side of this, and these are great valid points too, but on the other side, continuing releases of government documents keep supporting aspects of what he has said.
1: Yeah, small little pieces.
2: So it's there's no two ways about it, no bones about it. It's old beans to say it, but we should admit the <laughs> Dark Alliance does have several several prominent errors. Yeah. That could be critical to, you know, like a critical wound to the argument in the book. But CIA documents released from the agency at least confirm chunks of it. No one is arguing that the CIA showed often a very strange disinterest in the drug trade. Yeah. But how involved or not involved were they? Will future declassified documents vindicate Webb from beyond the grave? Did the was the murder something more indirect by ending his career? You know, it's like did the CIA commit the murder, and it was Gary Webb that pulled the trigger. Mm. It's I mean, it's a different <clears throat> way to look at it, but
1: well, it's something to think about because that strategy of uh, disinformation by giving a lot a lot of information to someone where almost all of it is true, but a couple are not true or almost all of it is untrue, but a couple things are true, Mm -hmm. right? And it makes you wonder if the way, especially if you look at it with the large chunks of unsupported claims that are in there, it makes you wonder if he's speaking to one or two people out of the groups of people who is giving him incorrect uh, information on purpose in order to, in the future, discredit him, which, like you said, Ben, would then eventually lead to two gunshots to the head. Levels. Self-inflicted. Levels. Know, just... yeah, what, do you th- what do you
3: think, Bill? I don't know. It's it's, it's very suspicious circumstances. I, I, right? I, I really, you know, it's like Cobain-level suspicious circumstances. You know, mm. I don't know. Yeah. I don't care for it.
2: It's definitely, it definitely has something something off about it, but the thing is, as well... If you are the Central Intelligence Agency, wouldn't you have the wherewithal to make a death look like an accident? Yeah, you know what I mean
1: well, maybe it then and, and here's the other thing if you're taken out by let's say portions of the narcotics world, so higher ups in the drug you know the the drug I don't want to call them companies, what do you call organizations? Sure these narcotics organizations it's probably also not going to be that clean
2: of a of a murder perhaps there, there's that it could be maybe sending a message, but it could have just been a suicide. I again going back to this make it look like an accident thing. it's a, a tragic truth that fatal car accidents happen multiple times every single day in this country yeah and in, in in most countries with dense populations and pedestrians and vehicles. So I'm still undecided. I know that the official story says that it was a suicide. His ex-spouse said it was a suicide. It is possible to shoot yourself twice in, in the act of committing this, but I don't know. I want to. Let's. What do you think, fellow yeah. conspiracy realists? To tell us. Tell us your your take on this. It just makes you.
1: Here is my plea to anyone listening to this who wants to be an investigative journalist or is an investigative journalist. Um, if. If you are working on anything that becomes highly important ever in your life, please, whatever the circumstances are, no, it's never bad enough to where you need to take your own life. Just know that. It's never going to get that dark. It, it cannot. Mm-hmm. You, you are worth it. Stick around. And these kind of claims won't have to uh, be looked at in the future.
3: And, of course, I mean, if you are feeling even remotely in that way – there are people that can help. I mean, there's the suicide prevention hotline. Mm-hmm. You can find a social worker or some kind of group where you can talk to people that are going through similar things than you. I mean, with at the risk of sounding cheesy and hyperbolic, I mean, you're never as alone as you might think. And I say that as someone who's dealt with suicide in my life and people with suicidal ideations, and it's absolutely not the
2: end-all be-all, even if it feels that way. Well said, and I don't think that's hyperbolic or cheesy at all. I think that was very well said. And if you ever feel like reaching out, if you ever just want someone to chat to, uh, we are all over the internet.
1: Yeah, you can find us. Uh, Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter, Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram, Facebook, Conspiracy Stuff. You can find us there. Join our Facebook group. If you're interested and you like the show, you want to talk to other like-minded people who can have just fantastic discussions. We've been having a lot this past week Mm -hmm. with everyone there. Uh, It's called Here's Where It Gets Crazy. That's our Facebook group. Find it. And all you have to do to be a member is uh, name the three
3: hosts of the show. And occasionally, our amazing moderators will send us screenshots of some really funny yeah. ones. And here's, here's the latest. Uh, so who are the hosts of the podcast? Stuff they don't want you to know. Answer. Benjamin Bowtie Bowling for Soup Bowlin. Matthias Fred Trump was the Lizard King Frederick. Noel Take Me Down to Funky Town, Brown. <laughs> wow, that's great. <laughs> who, was, who was that? Uh, a guy named Tristan. Tristan McNeil, mm-hmm. no, different Tristan. Okay,
2: <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that's true, isn't it? Like, no, Matt, honestly, if we think an answer is funny enough, uh, the mod, mods, while you're listening, I apologize, Cat, Zach, Sam, Coop. If <laughs> if we think there's something funny enough, then we'll probably <laughs> let it in.
1: Yeah, that's definitely my policy.
2: And while we're on the uh, while we're on the feel good train here, we would like to give a Big shout-out to our youngest fan, I believe, Eliza Ann Ray, who was uh, born to Nicholas Ray and his wife just a few days ago as we record this. Wow! And and so congratulations, Ray family. You asked us for a shout-out. And uh, remember, you promised one day you would play this episode for your kid.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the whole Gary Webb story. Why
2: do I have to do that? Why (laughs) do I play it as— no, <laughs> yeah, just play her the end. Actually, yeah, just, wait just until she's wait until she's an adult, or if people still listen to podcasts at that time. But no, I mean, we're funny with you. A little. You don't have to absolutely, absolutely do not feel obligated to play this for. Her. But we just wanted to say congratulations.
1: Absolutely. And if you don't want to contact us in any of those ways, you can give us a call. We are one 833 tdwytk Oh, that's the phone number. Leave us a message. You could get on the air. We're going to have another one of those coming up at some point. We've got so many great messages from from so many of you. It's hard to choose, honestly.
2: I like the weird ones.
1: That's my favorite, too. And if you don't want to do any of that stuff, you can send us a good old-fashioned
0: email. We are conspiracy at com.
3: $25 each.
1: Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to buy now. That's
3: LiveNation.com slash concertweek to buy now. Dealing with pest can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix.
1: With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast.
2: If your home or business has pest, don't stress it. Terminix
1: it
3: visit terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's
2: T E R M I N I X.com. Attention true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted
3: companion for CBD relief.